This idea of the GOAT, um, the GOAT's an acronym, an acronym that stands for the greatest of all time. Sport uh, and cultural pursuits, so people are forever debating, is Messi better than Ronaldo in soccer? And Michael will tell you for sure that it's Ronaldo, and you know he's wrong, but he'll tell you for sure that he's the greatest of all time. And you see people discuss, you know, the... 100 best novels of the 20th century or you see on Facebook all of these listicles and things BuzzFeed will send out, you know, the 37 best TV episodes of the 90s and all of these sorts of things. We love making these lists, we love ranking these things and you thought it was something new, thought it was just a Facebook phenomenon but it's been going on forever. We see here an example of it. What's the greatest command Christ has asked? The rabbis, um, so smarter people than me, tell me, had 613 commandments. 248 were positive, and that is, you know, do this. 365 were negative, don't do this. That's a lot, isn't it? A lot to keep track of, a lot to be aware of. It'd be kind of nice to have a shortcut, wouldn't it? It'd be kind of nice to know um, what do I need to do, boil down. Jesus answers this question. He answers it directly. He doesn't answer it with a preamble. He doesn't answer it um, based on parables, these type of things. Um, He doesn't answer it with uh, a rebuke. You compare it to the previous conversations he has in, for instance, in verse 18 of Matthew 22. Jesus says, Why do you test me, you hypocrites? Again in verse 29 he says, You are mistaken, not knowing the scriptures nor the power of God. So there were questions that he was asked that he thought, you know, and rightly so, um, that he was being asked this with an ulterior motive or, you know, they were asking um, in a way in which wasn't genuine. But where Jesus had an opportunity to answer directly and to teach straightforwardly, he did so. And this is one such occasion. Um, He takes as his answer um, more or less from Deuteronomy chapter 6 and really um, verses 1 to 25, but we won't go through all of that this evening. But this is the, the crux of the law. We know, as I said, you know, not only do we have the 613 commandments, but even you know, the, the Ten Commandments and these sorts of things. And we have all the Levitical laws that you know, Daniel had gone through earlier in the year. We know that there's a lot of law um, in the, the Jewish um, system of you know, religion and of civic culture. But verses 4 and following of Deuteronomy 6, again, really kind of boils it down and um, concentrates it for them. It says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. These words which I command you today shall be in your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. You shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down and when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house 
and your gates. So you get the sense there, you know, hey, this is important. This should be baked in to your life. You should be seeing these things consistently, doing these things consistently. This is what it's all about. Um, some of the more pious Jews repeated these commands twice daily um, just before their um, prayers. So why are these the, the greatest commands? What's so important? What's so fundamental? What's so bedrock about them? Well, let's look at the first um, command. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. God was central to Israel. It's not a controversial statement. This command was designed to remind them that the land they were possessing was not the source of their strength. The king that they were going to have, the the high priest, the whatever it was, was not the source of their strength. Rather, it was God that was the source of all that should have been important to them. So, they were to teach these things, make them front and centre all the time, on the doorposts, on the gates, make them a part of their daily life, visibly, literally. This was the God who was the great I Am, the unchanging Lord, who drew Israel into a covenant relationship. And it was he who used his power and his might on their behalf. And so it was that Lord, it was that God who they were to love, who they were to be thinking about constantly, to be mindful of. This is that love of intelligence, love of purpose, love of choice. This is to say, again, not to treat God as some sort of, you know, vague, spiritual sort of whatever, but this is to say, no, no, this is the God who brought us out of Egypt, this is the God who gave us salvation, this is the God who gave us the law, this is God who gives us you know, manna in the desert, who's given us this land. I need to, as an act of will, as an act of choice, as an act of repetition, as an act of conscious you know, front and centre in my life, choose to love God. There's equal emphasis here on each element. These aren't supposed to be different parts of man that we sort of, oh well, on Mondays and Tuesdays you love God with your heart and then on Thursdays it's your mind and then wherever you can fit it in, elsewhere use your strength. That's not the sense that he's getting at. Rather it's, it's different ways of thinking about the whole man in relation to God. And there's no clear distinction, there's not meant to be a, a clear distinction between them. Rather it's a reflection on that we are you know, complex, complicated beings, that there's different parts to us, different you know, emotions, these sorts of things. We are a whole um, and so these are different things that we bring to bear in our relationship with God and with one another. So the heart here, the heart is, uh, is translated from the word leb. Um, perhaps it's first because it's you know, considered the very centre of our personality. 
Um, and we use something similar, don't we? In English, we talk about doing something with all my heart. We say, ah, oh, you know, my heart wasn't in it. We talk about someone being lion-hearted or someone being heartless. And so this idea of, of the heart being not just the you know, beating centre of your cardiovascular system, but actually a, an emotional centre and a, a centre of you know, action, of purpose, these sorts of things. The idea here is of you know, um, intellect, of emotion, of will, all of these things coming together. Likewise, he says to love the Lord our God with our soul or really with our, our life. You know, it's the life that animates the body. And as he said, you know, through all of your daily activities, through all that you do that makes up your life, build God into that. Build an appreciation of God into that. Build an understanding of God. Build a, a thankfulness. Build um, a, a remembrance of God. And then, of course, we have the mind as well, the, the centre of reason, of thoughts, of ideas, of convictions. And so, you know, with our emotional selves and with our life force and with our thinking, all of that, we concentrate towards God. And God wants the whole. He wants all of it, doesn't he? He says, all your heart, all your soul, all your mind. God will have no mere part. He allows no division or subtraction. Not even the smallest corner is to be closed against God. It's an ultimate fundamental loyalty, not a superficial allegiance. The whole heart, the seat of our personality, the whole soul, the whole mind, the entire activity of our being is turned to God in love. God proclaimed the gospel to us. This is the supreme motive for us to return his love. Believing in such a God, how can we help but love him and render him the obedience of love? God's love is a fatherly love, isn't it? It's a love um, that is directed towards his children and in turn, we should love as devoted children. Out of this flows everything else. It's why it's the goat. It's why it's the greatest of all time. It's the bedrock on which we base everything else. All the other challenges that we are called to make, all of the other things that we need to answer for and, and do in our lives, these will likely founder unless we are able to love God in this way. Why turn up to a Bible class on a hot Sunday evening when you've already worshipped God? Unless you have a foundational love of God that, again, is motivational, that is, no, no, this is important and I'm going to do this. And uncomfortable, whatever it might be, this is going to help me this is going to honour God. This is going to remind me, again, just as you know, putting his commands on the doorposts and on a you know, phylactery that's right in front of your eyes, unavoidable. That's why we do these things, not because of some you know, um, 
easy thing or some social thing, but because we love God with our heart, with our soul, with our mind. We want to learn things. We want to learn from each other. We want to put these things into practice. He doesn't leave it with loving God, though, and there are times where we might like if he did. (laughs) It might be a lot easier just to love God, isn't it? And a lot of people choose that. Ian used to quote a bumper sticker, you know, give me Christ, not the church, these sorts of ideas, you know, that uh, I'll just sit over here and I will worship God in my own little way, but I don't really want to have the messy bits and pieces of other people involved in all of that. Christ doesn't see it that way. He says the second is like it. The second is on the same plane. The second is the same lever. You know, you have one or the other and you're just rowing in circles. You have both together and you're actually getting somewhere. He says simply, you shall love your neighbour as yourself. It doesn't say you shall be loved by your neighbours as you would like to be. It says you shall love your neighbour as yourself. We love to be loved, don't we? Louis Ginsberg, he says, love is the irresistible desire to be desired irresistibly. Victor Hugo, he said, the supreme happiness of life is the conviction that we are loved. Christ assumes that we like to be loved. Christ assumes that we seek what is best for us. And he's turning that around and he's saying, if you want to be loved, then you need to be doing that for other people. You need to be loving those about. And again, I know that you know this. We know that it's all very Christian. Yes, love your neighbour as yourself. It's almost a cliché. But there's a reason, again, that it's in this conversation as the greatest of all commands. Every lesson should probably be about this, shouldn't it? Maybe every lesson is about this. This morning we spoke about kind of people being in prison and um, those that you know, did not deserve it but were anyway. But what about those that should be in prison? Those that are um, wicked and a danger to other people and are um, harmful and hurtful and are you know, removed from um, the freedoms of society. How do we approach such people? How do we love people who have hurt us? How do we love people who clearly don't love us back? Christ sets this challenge before us. He says you're going to live in a world in which these thorny, difficult, messy questions come up. Everything flows from this. Our communication, our anger, our relationships, all the one another's that we have the discipline that we exercise towards others and is exercised towards us. All of this flows from this greatest command. It's a radical departure from current proceedings. It's the greatest, I think, because it shifts the dynamic from the self 
to others. And again, we say this command and think of this command so often that we don't actually really think what a major shift that it is. You think about it. You think about your own life. From birth, it's about you, isn't it? You need to survive. In order to survive, you need to pester your parents to be fed, to be sheltered, to be cared for. As you survive, you then grow and you mature. And again, it's largely about you. And where other people come into the picture, they tend to be pretty annoying, don't they? Your parents are often annoying. They're telling you what you can't do, shouldn't do. Your siblings are trying to take things from you or are getting things that you didn't get. It's entirely unfair because it's about you. Hey, Aaron. And so when Christ says, love your neighbour as yourself, yeah, but wait a minute. I have all these life goals that I'm progressing through. I just survived high school. I've got uni now and then I want to get a job and I want to get married and I want to have kids and I want to be retired at 55 and I want a boat and a second house and all of these sorts of things. And that's going to chew up a lot of my time and that's really important to me and I need to get to these things. And they're not bad things to get to. And, you know, I want to do the right thing and the kind thing, but I need to do it next to all of these things. And Christ says... Love your neighbour as yourself. It shifts from here, from the self, to others around you. And you think, yeah, well, that's not such a radical thing. I mean, you know... I say hello to my neighbours and I'm kind to other people and I don't, you know, lose my head at work and yell at people all of the time. I am quite good to my neighbours. But Christ is going deeper than that, isn't he? There's a reason he says this is the greatest, again, going back, a reason why we need to put this on the doorposts and, you know, Nico it on the front door and on the windscreen of the car or whatever you want to do. Every action changes. Every action needs to be considered through this prism. We need to be asking ourselves consistently, how is this loving my neighbour? Is this loving my neighbour? The actions that I'm currently doing, the goals that I currently have, the things that I want to do with whatever time, resources I have, are they enabling me to love my neighbour? And if they're not, is this failing the greatest command that Christ has stated plainly for us to keep? He gives us the way in for this. He says, love your neighbour as yourself. He gives us the marker. He gives us the test case. We know what the right answer is because we know what is best for ourselves. It's really kind of clever, isn't it? This isn't some external thing where we have to figure out, well, you know, how um, 
is it that I'm supposed to do that? It isn't some, you know, you have to kill three goats and four calves and eight doves and they need to be prepared in all of this way. This is something that we know intrinsically, that we can ask intrinsically. Would I do this to myself? How would I react if those words were directed towards me? If that action was aimed at me? Would I like this done to myself? Would I consider myself loved if this were done to me? These are the questions that he's asking. He's telling us to ask ourselves. Love your neighbour as yourself. And so it flows through everything. It comes right back to our, again, our communication, the words we choose, the jokes that we tell, all the way through to the punches we throw, the bombs we drop, all of the corruption, all of the sinful practices in the world, all of the ways in which you know, greed and um, hatred become part of the ways in which we deal with one another. All of these things are completely reinterpreted when we take this verse seriously. Of course, there's a loophole, isn't there? Uh It's the word neighbour. I just have to define that word neighbour, don't I? If I define that narrowly, then I'm off the hook. If I define it as just the people that I like and want to spend time with, well then, that makes it all a bit easier, doesn't it? Of course, Jesus answered that, doesn't he? Matthew five forty-three to 47, the Good Samaritan. The neighbour is the person you encounter next. Christ defines the neighbour in the widest possible circumstances, the widest possible context. The person you think is least likely to be your neighbour, Christ says, yeah, that person, that person in need, that person you've never encountered before, that person who is a different ethnic group, that person who you have despised for 300 years and mocked and ridiculed. Guess what? It's your neighbour. Guess what? It fits. Love your neighbour as yourself. Ralph Connor says, love, you know, seeks to make happy rather than to be happy. Paul Scherer says, love is a spendthrift. It leaves its arithmetic at home. It's always in the red. In other words, we should be spending more and not tallying up. Frankie Byrne, he says, respect is love in plain clothes. We probably didn't need to spend 40 minutes talking about these commands. They're pretty plain. They're pretty straightforward. The admonition, the reason why we bring it up tonight, the thing we want to take with us in this coming week, whether you end up in prison, whether you minister to prisoners, or whether you just go through your day-to-day life, we need to hold ourselves to this standard this standard of loving God with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our mind, and loving our neighbour as ourselves. 
We need to audit ourselves. We need to look closely at ourselves. We need to examine all of our actions through this prism, through this view of what God says is the greatest, is the most important thing for you to be doing. It's the greatest command. (laughs) What other motivation do we need?